0: This is Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your official home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
1: All right, everybody, welcome into this Wednesday edition of Hockey Central 960. Haley Salvian here with you for the next hour. Was off yesterday, so we didn't have our regular Tuesday programming. It was my dog's birthday, so I was not available. We had to get him some chicken nuggets, a little pup cup, lots of walks, was very, very busy. That was a joke. I mean, it was my dog's birthday, but that's not why I wasn't on the air yesterday. Um, as many of you know who listen to this program, I'm a writer at The Athletic and wrote a uh, big investigative piece into the Harvard women's hockey program. The head coach uh, who led that program retired yesterday, so that was a very busy day uh, working on that story, so was away for the day, back today and we're going to have a couple good shows this week because the Stanley Cup Final continues. The Vegas Golden Knights, they're up 2-0 on the series against the Florida Panthers. Game three goes on Thursday. We can tee that game up a little bit more tomorrow, uh, get some of our friends from Vegas to come on, talk a bit about what's going well so far for the Golden Knights. Uh, I guess, spoiler alert, it's everything. (laughs) Their defense looks great. Uh, I mean, they're blocking shots, they're scoring goals, they're playing well in front of Aiden Hill, who continues to play uh, excellent through this part uh, after coming into the series after, not the series, the playoffs, excuse me, after coming in uh, after Laurent Brassois got hurt. I mean, the forward group, they've got the star power, they got the depth. Jonathan Marchessault has been excellent. Mark Stone, Jack Eichel, I mean, he gets crushed by Matthew Kachuk in game two. Gets up, leaves, comes back for the third period. And what does he do? He gets the zone entry, wins a puck battle behind the net, and then makes an assist on another Jonathan so goal. Uh, that line with our Ivan Barbashev has been unbelievable through the playoffs, outscoring their opponents by a large clip at 5-on-5. Five five. So Vegas, they continue to roll. Um, Sergei Bobrovsky, meanwhile, losing his mojo a little bit. After winning the final three games of the series against the Boston Bruins. he's allowed uh, He allowed 10 goals in five games against Toronto, only six goals in four games against Carolina. Lights out. Unbelievable. You know, 21 goals saved above expected. Uh, nobody could solve Sergei Bobrovsky. And then he gets that long layoff, and everyone starts to wonder, is this going to mess up his rhythm? And I'm saying, I don't know think so. He didn't start for a while between the regular season and the playoffs, and then he comes in. Uh, hasn't been great. He's allowed eight goals against in 87 minutes against the Vegas Golden Knights. He was pulled in game two after allowing four goals on 13 shots. It's not been great, um, but I don't think Sergey Bobrovsky is the biggest issue facing the Florida Panthers right now. They have looked like a shell of the team that swept the Hurricanes to win the Prince of Wales trophy. And in that 7-2 beatdown in game two, they gave up a ton of chances, a lot of rush chances, giving guys like Jonathan Marchstone, Jack Eichel, a ton of free ice. I mean, Eichel was a zone entry machine, uh Mark Stone he's been a menace uh the one shift that he had where he loses his stick he goes up and screens uh screens a guy in Florida kind of looking like one of the shooting drill dummies grabs another stick makes a play gets the assist his teammate scores I mean Mark Stone's just been he continues to be excellent as he comes back by the way from back surgery that he had not too long ago um and they've also tied a record with 12 goals to the first two games of the cup final. Nine different goal scores for the Vegas Golden Knights. So a lot going well for them. Florida, meanwhile, they've got to clean it up in front of Bobrovsky. Got to clean it up in front of Alex Lyon, who, uh, who played for Bobrovsky in game two. Lots to fix. They had three days to do it. So we'll see how things go on game three on Thursday. Um, in other news, though. In the meantime, a three-team trade yesterday, multiple players, prospects, and picks involved. We're going to dive in on that uh, right now with Sean Gentilly when he joins us here and with Charlie O'Connor. Uh, he covers the Philadelphia Flyers for The Athletic. We're going to dive in on the Flyers side of things, that rebuild, and what a debut for GM Danny Breer, didn't dip his toe into the water, just dives right in uh, with a pretty fascinating trade. To recap before we bring Sean on here, uh, the trade was three teams, Columbus, L.A., and Philadelphia. The Columbus Blue Jackets get Ivan Provorov, 30% retained by the L.A. Kings. L.A. gets Hayden Hodgkinson and Kevin Connaughton. I apologize, that's Hayden Hodgson, I really butchered that, everybody. I Sorry. And then Philadelphia gets Cal Peterson, Sean Walker, Helga Granz, a first-round pick this year from Columbus. That's 26th overall. Uh, a 2024 or 25 conditional second-round pick from Columbus, and another second-rounder from L.A. in 2024. Um, complicated trade, but each team essentially get something that they needed right the kings get the cap space they need to be able to make some more moves this off season they wanted to keep vladislav gavrikov we've seen that uh signed to a two-year contract extension reportedly with a 5.875 million dollar aav the flyers who are in a rebuild they've said it now (laughs) it's official Flyers are rebuilding. They get some help for the future. And the Blue Jackets, meanwhile, get to revamp a decor that was terrible last season. And regardless of how you feel about Provorov, it's bound to be better with Provorov and Zach healthy on that blue line. So everyone checks a couple boxes. Things look pretty good, but let's dive in. We've got some We'll evaluate this trade with Sean Gentilly, senior national writer at The Athletic. He joins us now on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. Sean, how are we doing? I missed yesterday. It was my dog's birthday. It was had to get him some chicken nuggets. It was a very, very busy day in the Salvian yeah, Bono household. I the, so
2: I saw the post. I saw the post of Bono enjoying his chicken nuggets. I'm just glad that. He, had the, uh, he got the gum worked out of his fur. I know that was an issue when we were doing our podcast <laughs> last week. So happy birthday yeah. to the lad.
1: Yeah, he's six, so I don't want to talk about it any further. No okay. more comments or questions at this time. He's okay. getting old. It's all right. But there was a trade yesterday, other than Bono's birthday. Three-team trade flyers get Cal Peterson, Sean Walker, first-round pick, second-round pick, and then another second that could be In 2024 or 2025, it's conditional. Blue Jackets get Ivan Provorov, and the Kings get a couple of prospects and out from Cal Peterson's contract. I think it's a pretty interesting trade, lots of moving pieces there, Uh, but you're one of the big trade-grade guys at The Athletic. How do you evaluate the three teams involved?
2: One was rough because there were so many moving parts, and it's like the first one of the offseason, you're just trying to wrap your head around the specifics of it which was fun in and of itself like i know you're going to talk to charlie about the flyers and the things so I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna harp on that but it was cool to see danny briere's first move in his new job and there's some retained salary going on and there's that some, there's some uh there's some cap dumps going on and there's conditional picks and like there's a, a le- legitimate we'll say you know, but at times Ivan Provorov looked like a top pair defenseman, even even though he was. And so there's there, there's a lot of different elements in play there. And I think the the big takeaway is, is that he did a great job, right? But we were seized, we saw today also why the Kings, you know, wanted to dump Peterson because they went out and extended uh, Gavrikov, who was a really good player for them that they acquired uh, from the Blue Jackets at the deadline with the space that they saved by dumping Cal Peterson. I don't know. I, you know, I think I like I like it from I I, pro, I maybe I like it a little bit more for the Kings than maybe I did initially. Like as I sat with it for, for a few for whatever overnight I, Cal Peterson had no value for them, right? Like anybody could have had him um, in the season. He cleared cleared waivers. It wasn't like can't you can't bring him back. So you send him out kind of kind of valueless and then guys like you know the prospect and sean walker they were they were sort of fungible items too so if the end result yeah, there is he
1: was gonna get pushed space, out of the yeah. their blue line he's just like yeah, one of their i think, I think 18 right shot defenders that they have in the king's organization
2: honestly i i think i i don't think i thought about that enough whenever i was writing up the grade so you know, give the Kings a little bit more credit than I initially did. And on some level... Okay, however,
1: before you move on to, like, the Blue Jackets, though, Sean, I want to cut you off. I'm sorry, because the one thing that I struggled with is, is, yeah, great job, Rob Blake. You got out from the mess that you created by signing Cal Peterson to a three-year, $5 million contract extension.
2: Really, really confusing. That was a (laughs) weird one when it happened. You know, you're like, this is based on what exactly? Yeah, I, I, 100%. And they spent, you know, they had to eat that contract and have him, you know, buried in the AHL for, what, it was around Christmas and until the rest of the mm-hmm. season, right? So, yeah, I, I'm always sort of hesitant to give, give people all that much credit for cleaning up their own mess when it comes to contract decisions like that, for sure. Um, on the Blue Jackets end of things, like, on paper... Ivan Provarov at 4.8 or whatever it is after LA retains their chunk of the salary. That's not a bad, it could be worse, right? Him playing at mm-hmm. that number in a second pair role behind uh, Wierenski, it, it makes sense on some level. I just don't like the direction that <laughs> things are going uh, there in general. Right. I, I think, I think that's kind of part of it. And I think that sort of, Manifested itself in in the grade I gave him because I think I think I I think I might have given him a T plus or a C minus or something because it's like I get it you got to try out you got to try and win games and Yarmo Arm is under a lot of pressure to get stuff done and the calculus for the franchise changed last year whenever Johnny Goudreau signed there right you go you kind of m- move things up a couple years right you you ramp it up sure. I understand but man I Metro Division. Truly awful last year, even though they were pretty banged up and and had a had a brutal defensive core. I I, I get it, but man, I I just generally don't like the direction of that franchise overall. So I think that, I think that kind of was borne out in, in the grade I gave them.
1: You've got to assume that Kekalainen's under quite a bit of pressure to get things right this off
2: season. He's got. I mean, he goes first off. He goes out and adds like a big you know a big name player yesterday for one also he's hiring Matt he's hiring Mike Babcock he mm-hmm. uh, which is another you're using up some chips on that one and in, in some regard and then you look at what he did last season with Gaudreau and you end up ex- extending Lina and costing yourself all of your Bjorkstrand for n- no reason other than you weren't prepared to you know move into win now mode once Tony Gaudreau chose the team I I think I think there's I it's a fascinating situation there. I'll say that because, you know, at times last year, it seemed like they were surprised that Johnny Gaudreau chose them as like the flames were right. Cause that, or that roster and that organization really wasn't tailor made to add, you know, a 29 or 30 year old star. And now it seems like they're trying to fix it after the fact. And I, I'm just, I'm just not down with it.
1: Yeah. A lot going on in Columbus and in Philly, as I mentioned, we'll Talk a bit about that more with Charlie O'Connor. But I thought it was interesting to see Danny Breer dive in in this way when the Flyers had, when they announced their kind of new front office and it's Danny Briere, he's the GM and Keith Jones uh, is going to be the president of hockey ops and John Tortorella is going to play a role in the hockey ops decisions. There's questions of like, how's this going to look and what's Danny Briere going to be like as a GM? I mean, it's very clear now that the rebuild is on in Philly and Briere has shown some creativity early on and, you know, checking the boxes and getting things done. I mean, he gets a first round pick. He gets a couple prospects and then he gets, you know, potentially three more second rounders. Seems like Philly comes out. The, the Philadelphia rebuild, at the very least, uh-huh. comes out as a winner of this trade.
2: Yeah, Briere told us what he was going to do and then he went out and did it, right? That's what he said when he got hired. You know, there might be some pain. We need to rebuild. We need to add talent to the organization, like whatever, whatever the exact phrasing was, you know, we knew that this was coming and then he went out and acted upon it pretty quickly. And he said again yesterday too, at the, at his presser, he was like, we're still open for business. He's he's saying again, like, let's go. You want, you want my guys make an offer and we'll try to work something out. And, you know, I, I don't, it, it feels, it feels surprising, but it probably shouldn't.
1: I have to ask Charlie who's going to be next. Like who's the next rebuild casualty in Philadelphia? Probably Carter Hart, Kevin Hayes. We'll see.
2: It seems like moving on. I mean, yeah, it seems like a lot. Of the, yeah, it seems like a lot of the dialogue today is surrounded surrounded around Carter Hart. Right. I mean, he's got a little bit more inherent value, I think, to other teams than a guy like a guy like Kevin Hayes does. But you know, we'll see.
1: I think the goalie market is starting to get quite busy now though, after talking about how the UFA market is pretty lame. <laughs> it's like, you know, we mm-hmm. can't even get ten good UFAs on the list, so I've got to include the restricted free agents as well. There's offer sheet candidates. There's UFAs like Freddie Anderson and Tristan Jari. There's like, you know, Jeremy Swayman. How the heck are the Boston Bruins gonna get anything? Like, even if you trade away one of your bigger tickets the Bruins are going to have a hard time fielding a full roster like I don't know if people are like (laughs) making enough of a big deal of the the cap casualty in Boston right now because it's a lot so Jeremy Swayman could be you know the doomed and dreaded offer sheet candidate that way I mean we talk about offer sheets too much this time of year but I mean if there's a perfect one it's probably Jeremy Swayman and then you've got all these trade candidates now Connor Hellebuck um John Gibson, then you throw Carter Hart into the mix. So I do wonder if he's how valuable he's going to be when we look at some of the more like proven assets at that position. I'm talking about somebody like Connor Hallebuck more so than a Tristan Jari in this case over Carter Hart. But I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Goalies are, I don't even know what I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about with goalies. I'm going to be honest. Nobody does. I I mean, I, I,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing about Carter Hart is like he was pretty good last year. It seemed like he raided the ship. And uh, he's, he's still got an element of cost control to his game. And there aren't that many guys like that. Like, you're talking, like, yeah. the, the Pittsburgh Penguins are a great example. Like, in a perfect world, the Penguins, you know, you got to figure they would love to either improve on Tristan Jari in net or get him to take, like, a short term prove it deal. And there's no easy route for either of those things. He might be the best. He might be the best available goalie on the UFA market. A and B. Because of that fact, it's going to price him out of any kind of two-year prove it deal after a year where he was, you know, injured, injured and pretty inconsistent, right? So, you know, the idea of a of a Carter Hart floating out there, you know, where he's, uh, you know, cost controlled and pretty good. I, I think I, I think it is interesting, and, and it is an interesting wrinkle too you know part of the market is pretty soft
1: mm-hmm. his uh he's a restricted free agent in 2024 and then his first ufa year is 2025 so uh the youth the experience is, you know and that cost control nature certainly makes carter hart an intriguing asset this time of year um i want to move on though to a story that you wrote at The Athletic this week with Mike Russo. It was a great read, a really good piece about why an Atlanta team could succeed in the NHL if given a third chance. Before we get into the why, I'm curious what makes you think that Atlanta could be in the mix, whether it's as an expansion team, whether it's as Mm. a market that could be moved to if things go south, uh, more south <laughs> with the Arizona Coyotes. <laughs> what, what makes Atlanta a team to be talking about right now? Cause I think a lot of people are talking about Salt Lake city and maybe skirting mm-hmm. over Atlanta, but I don't know if we should be.
2: I think Salt Lake city is probably the leader in the clubhouse. If there were, if mm-hmm. there's one place like today, that if that they would, you know, push came to shove and they wanted to move the Coyotes, you know, tomorrow or in nine months, then, it's probably Salt Lake City, but there's something to be said for Atlanta too because there's multiple groups there that that uh that want a team and that, and that are capitalized to the point where they can they can get pretty close the The arena deal obviously is a little bit more complicated because you know there's two sites in the Atlanta area, both of them are theoretical right now one's a little bit farther along than the other, so who knows but the big something that Atlanta has working in its favor honestly is that there is a solid sized t- rink in Duluth, Georgia, where the ECHL team plays. You can it's probably 12 or 13,000 people there. So as a temporary solution, I think that's probably, in a lot of ways, it's on par with whatever we're seeing from Salt Lake City for sure.
1: Why, uh, why would it work this time around? Why would third times the charm work with an Atlanta yeah. hockey team?
2: I think they finally figured out where the arena needs to be on on some level and that's a that's a tough conversation to have because there's all sorts of socio-political elements to it right because Atlanta is an outlier or was and would be an outlier outlier among NHL cities because it's majority black and that that in the United States is you know it's it, it, it it's a it makes it different than, than other places right because because you you're talking about marketing the sport toward toward black people that you know typically isn't isn't uh, isn't marketed all that effectively you know in mm-hmm. in that area so that's a comp- that's a complicating factor for sure but regardless i think there's been studies done and growth shown i think in the northern suburbs of atlanta enough to say like if there were a rink there then you know it would be financially viable right that's that's the big thing there's people there that want a team and the expansion rules or the expansion process in the NHL has changed to the point over the last 20 or 25 years where, you know, you know, you're going to probably have a, a solid roster <laughs> coming out of the draft. We've seen it from Vegas. We've seen it from Seattle. That certainly was not in place uh, back in 99, whenever when a, whenever the Thrashers you know had their own inaugural season. So the idea of having a, a more competitive team, A, be an ownership group that actually wants to own a team, not just have a team to get an arena deal done. Uh, and then, you know, and then whenever it does come time to build an arena, knowing where it needs to go, having you know a a group of hockey fans, you know, that would kind of act as the uh, as, a, as as the core season ticket kind of fan base. I think all that stuff's in in play. And the the biggest thing to remember too, is that as franchise valuations go up. Ottawa is going to sell for a billion dollars, <laughs> whatever it ends up being. That money, if the league expands to 33 and 34 teams, goes directly to owners. That's say, we'll say two billion dollars in expansion fees, and in, in 33 or, or, or 34, maybe, can, can maybe, maybe conservatively, that goes directly to owners. Players don't see a cent of it, and I think that is a that's a major major uh, factor. In in, uh, in behind the you know the the for, like for the reason that we're talking about you know expansion here again.
1: Who would be on Vegas with the same rules as the original Atlanta expansion? That's great.
2: <laughs> oh my god, that's a great. That's a great question. I can you, you know who wouldn't I, have been uh, I don't. Andre I Fleury. think that's
1: an. Um, uh, would they what?
2: Mark Andre Fleury wouldn't have been. I, I can guarantee you that. Pittsburgh no, could have could have protect protected him. two. Yeah, they could have protected two goaltenders and figured it out with him and Matt Murray. Mark Andre Fleury was the first face of the franchise. He's the single biggest reason that they made it, you know, to a to a Cup final in in their first year. And if they were operating under the same guidelines that the Thrashers had to, he wouldn't have been part of it in the first place. So on and on and on. If you want to go, if you want to see something funny, honestly, go back and look at the stats for the thrashers their first couple years in the league. It's all dudes you never heard of. And it's all guys who aren't, who are just, you know, whatever. A lot, a lot of uh <laughs> the the guy drafted the the leading uh, points getter in, in their first year, who was actually drafted in the expansion draft was a defenseman and he had 31 points. Right. And it was just that <laughs> going on for, for years. So the die was cast and it was seen stands in the new market that just saw hellacious hockey for a couple years. And I think that sort of set the tone uh, for, for that, really that franchise's entire existence.
1: The expansion rules back then were uh, like, I don't know how you can expect yeah. a team to, like- to ice a competitive day one roster. What was it? It was in the 99 expansion. Uh, 26 teams were permitted to protect either 15 players five defensemen, nine forwards, one goalie, or 11 players, 3D, seven forwards, two goalies. Mm-hmm. And you talked mm-hmm. to Ray Ferraro for the story, and I thought it was so funny. They were flying down, and they, they realized, you know, the Thrashers are going to be led in offense by Nelson Emerson and Ray Ferraro, and that's the moment that Ray realized that the team was going to be in deep yeah, trouble. Was like, like oh, me? Deep. Oh, no. In deep,
2: <laughs> in deep trouble. Yeah, the the... The, uh, the draft process it was like punitive almost you're like are they are they trying to punish these 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 guys these people these owners for for, for one thing an NHL team it really was crazy and now Scentivize you know and I think a big part of that yep and a big part of that you know the big reason that's changed is because you know there's a I know inflation and all that stuff but bill fully paying 650 million. The Kraken ownership paying seven hundred or whatever it was—that's a big, big change from Ted Turner paying eighty for that team back in nineteen ninety nine. When people pay that much money, they expect immediate results, and the end result is, you know, has been whatever two playoff caliber teams like straight out of the gate, pretty much.
1: It'll be interesting to see how this. Process kind of continues. I know you had Marty Walsh on your episode, your Tuesday episode of the Athletic Hockey Show, and and asked him point blank about the Arizona situation and how. And Bill Daly spoke about this as well, like. They're gonna to have to figure something out, and it's gonna to have to be soon because NHL players need to be treated like NHL players and play in an NHL arena. Uh, so we're, I think it's gonna be something to continue to watch this summer. What happens with the Coyotes? What happens with relocation or expansion with Salt Lake? With Atlanta? Seems like uh, there's a lot going on there. And we still have the Stanley Cup Final going on.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. We're still playing an actual hockey games. It's crazy. I forgot about that. It's a lot Game easier, th- I mean, going back to Arizona, it's like a lot easier if you're, like, Mullet Arena is all, it's all fun and games, and it's like, oh, there's there's an end in sight, right, where it's yeah. like in three years or four years there's going to be a big-time big league arena uh, for, the, for those guys to are playing. And now that that's off the board, I mean, that's what, that's what Marty Walsh said. Like, the mindset changes, right? It's It's fun when you know that there's an end in sight, and right now there isn't one.
1: And Marty Walsh is the new uh, executive director of the NHLPA, of course, uh, was introduced in that role a couple months ago. Um, just a couple more minutes left with you, Sean, before we let you go, just because we were talking about the expansion rules and how Vegas is way better than the Atlanta mm-hmm. Thrashers were in, when they were <laughs> introduced in 1999. Um, Vegas, they're up 2 nothing on the Florida Panthers. Got to get your thoughts on the cup final so far. It's only been two games. They've had a couple days off. The Panthers have to kind of shift their focus, you know, get, get, regain their composure, I would say. Get Sergey Bobrovsky's mojo back. Uh, and then they have a couple games at home here. Game three uh, goes on Thursday night in uh, Sunrise. Uh, Vegas looks really hard to beat, though. Do you have a thought on the cup final?
2: I think all those things that we thought, that we knew we were going to have to, you know, those, like, Unsustainable sort of things that were working for for Florida. There was Bobrovsky playing unbelievably, or, you know, Matthew Kachuk scoring, you know, overtime goals every other night. Stuff stuff like that. (laughs) Right. Like, that stuff needed to keep happening because the stuff that was going on under the hood for Florida in terms of, you know, run of play and puck possession and all that stuff, it had kind of flipped over the last over the last couple of rounds and it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Right. But Brodsky's look normal. Kachuk's been, you know, in the box more than he's been out of it for it, it points in, in the first two games. And the end result is, you know, Vegas looks like they have them out class. That's such a good lineup. It's such a deep lineup. <laughs> there's so and there's so much star power at, at the top of it, particularly uh, for particularly it forward, man. I, it's a tough, that's a tough ask. If you have someone like Aiden Hill who comes in and you know, is playing significantly better than than his opponent, I I mean, I'm not sure not sure what you're supposed to do with that.
1: Yeah. They've been uh, great to watch and was talking about the Mark Stone moment where he kinda looked like one of those shooting dummies and then grabbed a new stick and <laughs> assisted <laughs> assisted. That was, He's perfect. That was like, He's my favorite hockey player. I've jumped off the Matthew Kachuk wagon. It's all I'm all Mark Stone now.
2: That was like veteran savvy too, because he didn't have a stick, but he knew he wanted to do something. So he didn't, he didn't like stick his foot out or his hand out or whatever and try to block a shot. He went, yeah, he went shoot, he went shooting dummy mode. It was, it was genius. <laughs> he, he checked, he checked every box. Stay safe out there, but also make it look like you're trying to, trying to do something and, and, and make a difference. We we love it.
1: Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, thanks for doing this, Sean. We'll. Uh, I was gonna say we'll have to do this again, but. We won't. It's almost the end okay. of the year. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. see. <laughs>
2: Goodbye, for- Goodbye forever.
1: See you later. Talk to you on the show. The other show. There goes uh, Sean Gentile, senior national writer at The Athletic. He joined us there on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline, brought to you by Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, using the same secret recipe since 19... 19- 75. You can dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Take out or delivery at 403-248-3344. Uh so that's right. Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final goes on Thursday night. We can tee that matchup against the Florida Panthers a little bit more tomorrow ahead of that game. In the meantime, we're going to go to a quick break and then bring in Charlie O'Connor. He covers the Philadelphia Flyers for the Athletic and dive in a little bit more on that 3-team deal from yesterday between the Flyers, Kings, and Blue Jackets, and what this means for the Flyers. Who's next? Carter Hart, Kevin Hayes. What else is going to happen during this Flyers rebuild? That's all coming up next on Hockey Central and Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
0: You're listening to Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your home of the flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
1: All right, Hockey Central continues here on Sportsnet 960. Still waiting for the Cup final to continue. Three days between Game two and three. Game three will go on Thursday night between the Vegas Golden Knights and Florida Panthers. Vegas with a two nothing lead over Florida as the series shifts to Sunrise. We'll get you covered on that tomorrow here on the show. But for now, we're going to keep dissecting the three team trade. From yesterday, multiple players, prospects, picks involved between the Columbus Blue Jackets, L.A. Kings, and Philadelphia Flyers. To break it down some more, we're joined now by Charlie O'Connor. He covers the Philadelphia Flyers for the Athletic. He's here now on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. Charlie, how are we doing today?
0: Hey, thanks for uh, for having me. It was a pretty crazy day yesterday, so just still trying to uh, kind of take stock <laughs> of everything and and where the uh, you know, where the Flyers fall moving forward, going into what really is looking like a pretty big offseason for them.
1: Right. I mean, there were so many questions when the Flyers kind of unveiled the the front office plan, so to speak. Danny Briere, interim tag lifted. Keith Jones comes in. Um, John Tortorella is going to play a role in player personnel operations so it's going to be the three of them how's this going to work and what's going to come next and Danny Breer starts using the word rebuild which seems significant and then comes yesterday's deal uh, from Ivan Provorov and then some rumbles about uh, Carter Hart seems like it's going to be an interesting summer in Philadelphia let's start with that three-team deal yesterday though uh, Philly moves on from Ivan Provorov for some picks and prospects what's your initial evaluation of that
0: deal? Well, I think the deal, you know, to start, it's a perfectly fine deal for the Flyers. Um, I think Ivan Provorov was a guy who was on his way out. He had made it pretty clear internally that when his next contract, when his, when his current contract expired, he wasn't going to resign with the Flyers. So at best, they were going to have him for another couple years. And really, he just didn't really fit at this point. Um, He wasn't super popular in the locker room. He really didn't want to stick around for a rebuild. He wasn't really clicking with John Tortorella. So he was a guy who I fully expected that to trade this summer as long as they could get a half decent package for him, and they got a pretty solid package for him. I mean, they had to include the third team, and they basically took on salary from uh, you know from LA to, to facilitate the deal. But in the end, if you're talking about what they actually got back for Provoth, it was a first round pick and a second round pick from Columbus, and that's a pretty solid return for a guy who hasn't had a really good season since 2019-2020. He's really had three straight down seasons ever since Matt Niskanen retired after the bubble playoffs. So, yeah, he's still 26. Yeah, he still has a lot of talent and certainly could bounce back in a in a different environment, but I don't think it was ever going to happen in Philly. The, the relationship between you know player and environment in general just got too toxic. So you get back a good package for him, and you did it in a way that allows you to, to stockpile assets and proves that you are committed to this idea of a rebuild, which, as you said, Danny Breer has been talking about since he's taken the job.
1: how significant is it the fact that Danny Breer is actually not just committing to a rebuild but actually like saying the word Because what was it under Chuck Fletcher um they wouldn't say rebuild um retool like he would not say the word rebuild so now you get a gm who's just like yeah we're just gonna call it like it is and we're gonna go out and do the things that's necessary to make this kind of next era of flyers hockey better and we're seeing early on the the commitment and, and the action plan taking place seemed like a a creative first move to to bring in some some picks and prospects for for danny breer
0: it definitely was, and going back to what you said about about Fletcher and not being able to say the word "rebuild." On one hand, you know Chuck Fletcher could have done a much better job of communicating and articulating what the Flyers are trying to do. The famous words that he said were aggressive retool. That was what he said back in, (laughs) I believe it was, the, the end of January of 2022. That was received super well by the Flyers fan base. However, in his defense, and this is something that you have to understand, When talking about the changes the Flyers have made recently, a big reason why he never said the word rebuild is because he wasn't allowed to say the word rebuild. Ownership had not cleared him to say the word rebuild because they hadn't cleared him to rebuild. They still felt like this could be saved, and they kind of were just telling him, you got to fix this. Find a way to fix this. We're not going to blow it up. Well, when Briere came in, he got the go-ahead from the people above him to, you know, you can say the word rebuild and you can actually rebuild. So there's there's that aspect of it where, like, I'm not going to blame Fletcher too much for – not saying rebuild because it wasn't allowed to. That said, the big thing that Fletcher never really showed that he could do as GM of the Flyers was be creative. You know, we go back to the last move or non-move that he he wasn't able to make before he was let go, which was not being able to trade James Van Riems at a trade deadline, and he basically said that, well, it couldn't have been done. No one wanted him. His cap was too high, and the point I made was that, look, Maybe you're right. Maybe Chuck Fletcher couldn't trade James Van Reeves. Like maybe there's absolutely nothing that he could have done, but you know, maybe a more creative GM would have found a way to do it. Maybe there was a way. Maybe it was just that Fletcher couldn't do it for reasons that he just wasn't capable of it. And I think with Briere, we're seeing in this trade, his very first trade, that he does have that creativity that I think Fletcher lacked. And that's not to say Breer is going to be an amazing GM. It's not to say that you know this his trade means that he's going to solve all the Flyers' problems. But at the very <laughs> least, it shows that, you know, he was given a guy in you know, Ivan Brovroff coming off three straight down years – who everyone around the league knew wasn't super popular in that locker room, didn't have a good fit with the coach, and he was still able to get back a good return for him by being creative, by getting a third team involved that could retain salary on Proveroff, by taking on some some assets from uh, from from the Kings to uh, to allow them to facilitate the deal. So, you know, is it a home run deal for the Flyers? No, it's it's a big deal. I wouldn't say it's it's a franchise-changing deal, but it shows, number one, that they're actually rebuilding, you know, that those weren't just words, and number two, that Danny Breer just might have the kind of creativity that the Flyers are going to need to do this right.
1: Do you think that almost sets a really nice baseline for some of the other pieces that the Flyers might be able to move out This summer, Uh, you know, not to say that Carter Hart's going to get the exact same return, not to say that, you know, uh, Kevin Hayes is going to get the same return, but it seems like he kind of set his own, you know, really nice benchmark for, for what the Flyers want to get if they're going to be moving pieces out this offseason.
0: Yeah, and I think it also showed that that he's he's a serious negotiator, and he's not the kind of person that you're going to be able to to fleece in a deal, which was a concern given the fact that Breyer doesn't have a lot of NHL front office experience. He's he was never really a true assistant GM, so there was maybe some concerns of you know is he going to jump in, and are all the other GMs going to take advantage of his uh, you know of his lack of experience and and kind of rob him? And that's not what happened here. Now in terms Terms of what he's going to get for other players on the trade market you know this I think is where that creativity comes into play because the guys they're trying to trade you know these aren't just you know put the put the name out in the group chat and take the best offer when it comes to the selling like a Kevin Hayes you know if he's going to trade Kevin Hayes it's probably going to have to retain salary he might have to take a player back you know I think He can get value in terms of future assets back for Hayes, but it's not going to be as simple as just saying, hey, who wants three more years of? You thirty-year-old know, Kevin Hayes at seven million dollars a year. Like that's not going to happen. So if he's going to move Hayes, he's going to have to do it in a creative way. And you know, do I think he's going to get a first-round pick back for Kevin Hayes? No, but maybe he can work a bigger trade to maximize the return. And you know, with Carter Hart, it's a little bit different because Carter Hart absolutely does have value around the league. He's a twenty-four-year-old, you know, pretty darn good goalie—not an elite goalie, but a pretty good goalie. So he's going to have value. Thing is, is that. There really aren't a lot of comparables for trading a 24 year old above average goalie. So Briere is going to have to discover for himself what the market is. You know, at least with Provorov, you, you could look at guys like Ekholm. You could look at guys like like Hampus Lindholm and say, okay, that's the going rate for these types of players. With Hart, you really can't. So Briere is going to have to figure out this market on his own, which isn't easy. And Again, the fact that he was able to creatively solve the Proveroff problem, it's not apples to apples, but it, it inspires confidence that he also might be able to creatively, you know, shop Kevin Hayes and creatively maximize what he could potentially get back in a Carter Hart deal too.
1: What do you think comes next for Carter Hart? There was a lot of chatter about it yesterday. Uh, some people thinking that something was coming down the pipeline, like <laughs> imminently. Um, you kind of pumped the brakes on that uh, on social media. I think a lot of insiders have as well. But it does seem like Carter Hart is somebody who could get a lot for the Philadelphia Flyers. What do you think happens between between the organization and Carter Hart this summer?
0: Yeah, I think the way the Flyers are kind of looking at it with Hart is that they don't have to trade Hart. You know, I, I think the Proveroff situation and the Hayes situation were a little bit different because everybody knew Proveroff's fit wasn't great. Everybody knows that Kevin Hayes and John Tortorella don't get along. So those guys, like, they're probably gonna have to get moved. The thing with Hart is he's still young enough in theory that you could justify keeping him around. In the hopes that the rebuild doesn't take that long you know it's maybe only a three-year rebuild and he's still 27 28 when the teams turn in the corner so you don't have to move him which does give you leverage and it allows you to be like okay we will just hold on to him if you guys don't blow us away with an offer so if you want this guy blow us away with an offer so i mean i'd have to assume that at the very least you're talking about a first round pick for Carter Hart. And then it comes down to what else in addition to that would you have to give up to get him? Because I don't think the Flyers are going to just trade Carter Hart to trade him. They'll trade Carter Hart if you offer a really good package for him, they're open to it. But it's it's not a case of, you know, we're selling Carter Hart for the highest bidder. It's basically mm-hmm. you better bid high or we'll just keep him.
1: What else uh, is going to be on the to-do list for the Flyers this offseason? Obviously, there's going to be some guys there's some decisions to make uh, with players, as you mentioned, like Kevin Hayes. Uh, they already did the Provorov decision. Um, what's uh, What are some of the other top-of-mind top, top of mind things sort out for the Flyers this summer?
0: I think there are a few other veteran guys that, that certainly could be on the trade block. You know, the, the Tony D'Angelo situation is fascinating. This is a guy, you know, one of Chuck Fletcher's Biggest final moves. He made that last summer. And then by the end of the season, uh, John Tortorella was scratching Tony D'Angelo for the final five games of the year. So, well I think from an asset management standpoint, it probably makes more sense for them to keep D'Angelo and then maybe look to move him at the trade deadline next year when he's on an expiring contract. But if the Flyers look at the situation and say that, Tortorello and D'Angelo just can't coexist, and they want to clear out space for more young prospects to play in their top six all year, maybe they look to move him. Then you've got, uh, I'm trying to think who else, I guess you've got Travis connectney I think they're probably going to keep him, because I think they like him enough. Um, Breer really likes him. Tortorella really likes him. I think they want to keep him around. I personally think that he doesn't really fit their timeline, but I don't get the sense there's a ton of motivation to to sell him, at this point at least. Um, and then from there, you also have to make decisions on some of the, some of your RFAs. You've got, you know, guys like uh, Noah Cates, guys like Morgan Frost, guys like Cam York. They're all restricted free agents this summer, and the Flyers are going to need to make decisions. Not in the sense that they're going to trade any of them. I wouldn't expect that but they need to make decisions on whether any of those guys are guys they potentially look to go long-term with, with the goal of maybe overpaying them a little bit in the short term so that they're on good contracts for when hopefully the Flyers are coming out of their rebuild in three, four, five years.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess one final thought for you, Charlie, before we let you go, and I know you spoke to Danny Brier's creativity. Is there anything else that you learned about him from this deal that you think is going to be important for this next era for the Philadelphia Flyers with Danny Breer at the top?
0: Well, you know, one thing I think we definitely learned, and you kind of touched on it at the at the start of our conversation, is that he really is running the show because you know, yeah, they they implemented this. Uh, this triumvirate of leadership is what uh, Flyers, uh, Comcast Spectacle, the ownership, um, new chairman Dan Hilfrey called it, um, of John Tortorella, the head coach, Danny Breer, the GM, and Keith Jones, the president of Hockey Operations. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't say that Keith Jones wasn't involved. Breer said that he was on the phone with, with Jonesy four or five times a day in the days leading up to the trade. But the fact of the matter is, is that Keith Jones is still calling games on TNT for the Stanley Cup final right now. So, you know, if... if if Jones was was a president of hockey operations that really was the de facto GM, presumably they would have waited until he was no longer doing an entirely other job to do this trade. The fact that Breer executed on this now, as early as he did, and trades don't usually happen during the Stanley Cup final. The fact that Breer got this done while one of the other three members of the triumvirate is literally doing another job at the moment, I think that tells you where the power really lies, and and the power really lies with Briere. This isn't a case of you know Jones really pulling the strings. This is Briere's show, and for better or worse, whether he's able to do it, that's going to decide how the Flyers rebuild goes. I don't think this is going to be a case of you know Keith Jones is actually the guy, or John Tortorella is making all the decisions. This is Danny Briere's show, and you know whether he's able to do it or not, we'll see. But he's the guy in Philly.
1: We had Keith Jones on this show a couple weeks ago, and after the one interview, like one quick chat with him, I was like, "Yeah, I totally understand why they brought him in for this. <laughs> Just go and uh, do the media, be the public face of things, you know, talk to people about what comes next in Philly, you know, be be engaging and charming, and everything's gonna work out." I was like, "Yeah, I totally get it. Good talker that Keith yeah, Jones. It's- Almost like he's been doing media for a while."
0: Almost like it was his job for close to two <laughs> decades. hey he was a not not only i mean you guys obviously know him as a uh, you know a commentator on on hockey shows. He actually was on one of the morning shows in Philadelphia as a radio host for close to two decades too. so he's he's not just a uh, he's not just a commentator he's a he's a pure entertainer from a uh, from a talk radio standpoint as well. So yeah, I think at least on the public facing side of this job, I think he's going to do absolutely fine.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this, Charlie. It was great stuff, and uh, good luck with the rest of the offseason. Should be a busy one for you.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Ellie.
1: All right. There goes Charlie O'Connor, covers the Philadelphia Flyers for the Athletic. Lots of insight there into what comes next for the Flyers and just evaluating that big three-team deal uh, between the Flyers, the Blue Jackets, and the L.A. Kings from yesterday. The other bit of news there, uh, this was from Dan Milstein Vladislav Gavrikov's agent, that Gavrikov has signed a two-year contract extension. According to Elliot Friedman, reports are that it's worth a $5.875 million average annual value. Uh, that's all the time we have today on Hockey Central. We'll be back tomorrow. As mentioned, we'll be able to tee up game three of the Stanley Cup final between the Vegas Golden Knights and Florida Panthers. Puck drop will come on Thursday night. We'll tee that up tomorrow on Hockey Central here on Sports at 960 The Fan.